Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Sharon Wee, who is the New York-based author of Growing Up in Anonia Kitchen. Part cookbook, part memoir, this book was written in memory of her late mother. It also celebrates what Sharon calls the fading generation of professional housewives in Singapore. In the following conversation, Sharon shares about the importance of cooking at home and keeping traditions alive, as well as her journey of writing this book. I feel like in the media, the Nonias have been painted to be like these legendary cooks and like the children grow up around all the kueh and all these intricate dishes. Do you think that is really an accurate portrayal? You know, I think it's very romanticized, honestly. Um, because I think the, the, the main, well, you know, when, when Singaporeans think of Nonias, they think of, you know, the beautiful sarang kabaya, the krosang, uh, the baba wedding, you know, and then the dondang sayang, and then along with that comes all the bling, and, uh, you know, all the beautiful, like, tok panjang um, dinner sets with, all the different dishes, right? No hyang, pung tauhu, um, you know, patwan kapiting, and and they think this is all the stuff that we eat. Okay, I mean, like every day, like you know, one day I wake up and I go, I want to eat bakuloa, and tomorrow I wake up and eat no hyang. I mean, yes, to some degree, but um, there were other things that we ate that were very simple, as simple as you know the fried fish with the chili paste stuff in it we call it ikan sumbat uh we even had you know um <laughs> talking about squid game i don't feature that okay <laughs> it's uh it's uh, um it's a squid uh soup is a soup with all these squid in there with like um minced pork stuffed in it okay so that's that's not spicy right i mean that is pretty um flavorful but it's it's clean. It's a clean soup, and uh, it's got the uh, bean thread noodles. You know the the, the transparent noodles in there, um, and then you know if you want to flavor it, we would probably have a side of sambal blachan, uh, which is like our like you know our maybe our ketchup or chili sauce, right? I mean, we would we would dab a little bit um, on on that um, pork paste or the uh, or the squid. And, and then we will use the soup, we'll drizzle over the rice. My, my dad always did that. You know, even now my kids always, you know, every time we, we sit down with some soup, they say, oh, just like Gong Gong, you know, we have to drizzle the soup over the rice. <laughs> and then we had vegetable. But believe it or not, you know, uh, when I was growing up, um, we weren't so, um, it wasn't like vegetable was a must-have dish. Okay, I mean, it, it wasn't, the way we view vegetable now, which is like, it's healthy, it's good for digestion, you know, etc. Um, at that time, you know, it was all about good stuff like meat, pork, chicken, um, sometimes beef, right? Uh, fish. And then, you know, the, the vegetable would always be pretty simple. And in fact, I, I asked my grand aunt, Kopo Benio, I said, why are all our suits always you know, why do they always feature cabbage? <laughs> like uh, ipio soup, you know? And she said, oh, because cabbage is cheap. It's affordable. So I was like, oh, okay. That's pro- 
really want to eat a lot of uh, cabbage. And then um, they had ladies' fingers. They like, uh, you know, and sometimes we even had a simple like tauge fried with uh, salted fish. Mm. Right? And, and that you can have it. You don't have to be a Peranakan to have it. You have it with your techu porridge as well, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, and then there was one called Sambal Tite, which uh, <laughs> is a funny story in my cookbook because I had no idea what it was. And um, actually, it's considered like the mother spice paste, mm. which I found out later. Yeah. And so when my mom passed away, we were cleaning out the fridge and we had all these like nicely sealed, she vacuum sealed them. All these nicely sealed, you know, like orange spice paste, rumpai. <laughs> we were so excited. We said, oh, this was even for Udang Nanas. So we doled it out, gave it to all the different sisters. And then later on, we found out this was actually like the basic paste, you know. And from there, she added different things to make different kinds of uh, dishes. Yeah. So then, you know, I asked my, my dad, I said, um, well, what is sambal tite? He said, you only, you, you only know if you try how to cook it, you know, because I, I had the recipe, but I had no idea what it looked like and I couldn't remember what it was. You know, because you sit down, you eat, but you never really, and you yeah. know, I was kind of young then. I didn't ex- always ask, what is this called? You know, mm. you, you just grow up eating them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So how did you start learning how to cook? Was it something that happened when, you know, I mean, was it a very organic process of you learning from your mom? I did not um, learn to cook like where a lot of cookbook authors say they sat there and they watched their mother cook and they learned to cook with their mother and etc. I mean, good for them. Okay. But in my time, um, you know, we were supposed to study um, be really active in school. I was a prefect. I did NCC. And, and then, you know, for A-levels, I had to take a bus to Raffles, which was like three hours back and forth. You know, I didn't really have the time. And, and studies were a lot more important. On top of that, I was a left-handed person. So my mom always lost patience. with me. She said, ah, Sidala, you know, you're left-handed. You know, I cut one way, you cut another way. So she was, yeah, she just lost patience with me. So it was only when I moved abroad and I really had to learn how to cook. And I also worked for a food company, M&M Mars. And um, at some point, I was assigned their uh, sauces. And, um, you know, then I lived in Hong Kong and I cooked. And and then when I moved to New York, I also learned how to cook. Um, And there came a point in early 2001 at that point I was cooking a lot you know I had like friends over for Thanksgiving for Christmas um, you know 4th of July every time you know we have like big parties and um, in early 2001 I had some hiatus from work and and so my friend said to me you know you should go back and pick up skills from your mom and learn how to cook from her since you're wondering what to do. And I said, yeah, that's a good point. So I went back for Chinese New Year in 2001. And I told my mom, I said, you know, I I think I should um, start learning all the stuff that I like, you know, the stuff that you cook. So she pulled out her um, recipes. You know, she had, and I have them with me now. She had hundreds of recipes, right? All in nice plastic files. And she pulled this one out and she said, ah, this is the one. Okay? And so I would scan with a, a 
you know, like S, and I'll, I'll, sorry, I'll mark SC at the corner, top left corner, and then I would Xerox it. Okay, so all these different recipes, I'd scan them. And then I said, okay, okay, mom, I will take them back and I will type them out nicely. And I never came back. Um, I, left, I left Singapore like maybe February. I was supposed to go back in August. I did not. And um, I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe I'll go back in, in December. And in, in any case, I will go back for Christmas. And at that point, um, mommy will be cooking. I mean, sorry, she'll be baking cookies and making her cakes and, and getting ready for Chinese New Year. So I'll learn it all in one shot. And lo and behold, my mom got really ill. She was hospitalized and she never really left the hospital. She died three months later. So I had all these recipes with me and, um, you know, I was going through them and over time I started asking my sisters because a few of them actually did do, uh, you know, the sit down, observe her, record everything, type it all out. So they had their notes as well. And I would ask, um, you know, one sister, okay, so how, how did, how did you all do bokolo? And then, you know, like, oh, how about the ipio or the nohyang? You know, and different sisters learn different things according to what they like, you know. Like, so one, one, would, one would be the nohyang expert, one would be the bokolo expert, and then one do the nonya hokkien mi, you know. So, so I cobbled all that together, and then um, I started asking my neighbor, Auntie Petty, who lived across the street. And um, we've been neighbors for like the last 40 years. So interviewed her and then also interviewed my grand aunt. And, um, you know, just started to, to really look through the recipes, talk to a lot of the relatives. And, and, you know, like every time we sat down at meals, I'd say, oh, so, so why is it this way or why is it that way? And that's really how it it all worked out. So why write a cookbook? I mean, you and your sisters, you all had this record of all your recipes and they were like experts at making nohyang and like doing the bakluak. So why compile it into a cookbook? The cookbook project um, was never meant to be what you see today. Okay, when I did the scanning, um, I really thought I was going to do like a Xerox copy for each niece. At that point, I didn't even have a daughter okay so i just had um three no yeah four nieces four nieces and i thought oh okay you know xerox everything like you know <laughs> this homebound like mama's favorite recipes right and and then when she passed away um at that point um i was doing my mba and i never went back to work because my my daughter was um when she was born she had um, some health issues, which took quite a bit of time. So then I thought about the fact that, you know, all, for the most part, for during my mom's lifetime, I, I would always get her a cookbook for Christmas, Mother's Day, for her birthday. And she really loved cookbooks. So the other thing that I, I did share in my book is that my mom was semi-literate because she, her, her education was interrupted by the war, the Japanese war. And also um, she was from a very genteel upbringing. Okay, her father didn't think that 
it was really that necessary to go to school. So cookbooks were really um, a form of entertainment for her. She would look through and she'll see the photographs and, and she'll just, you know, admire them, examine them. And then sometimes she'll ask me or ask someone else to read the recipe. And then she'll say, mm, yeah, juga, yeah, betul, betul. You know, or then sometimes she'll say, ayah, gasak buta, which means like, you know, you slap it all together and it's really like haphazard, doesn't make sense, okay? So, so you know, I always thought, I think my mom deserves a book of her own. And so I went all out and I thought, you know what, why not a full-fledged cookbook? The challenge was actually to find the right publisher. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I got one because Marshall Cavendish really did help me. Yeah, and it was more than just a cookbook, right? It was also your own personal memoir and your memories growing up. Um, how was that process of writing this kind of cookbook like for you? Um, one of the things that I wrote in my cookbook was that um, I am a fifth-generation Nonia by birth on both sides of the family. Um, proud to say it's rather rare these days. <laughs> um, I'll find out, you know, the, you know the, the whole genetics research thing. I could actually be like pure 100% Chinese. <laughs> who knows, right? I'm, I'm going to get the results soon. But uh, I, I am supposedly fifth, uh, fifth generation. But it was in the process of doing this memoir and doing all that research that I actually felt like I had fallen in love all over again with my heritage. Like you, I watched The Little Nonia. Um, I, I made trips to Malacca. I would visit the Pranaka Museum. I probably could go in blindfolded <laughs> and know exactly where everything is. Um, you know, and, and I, I bought every conceivable coffee table book there was about um, Pranakan um, artifacts, whether it's antiques or furniture or costume, a certain costumes, fashion, uh, jewelry, um, to study it. There's some really very interesting books, you know, like there's even one about the Pranakan house, you know, the shop house. And I did a lot of research. I went as far as going to Bukit Brown to visit my ancestors' graves. Um, you know, I had this very irrational fear of snakes. The fact that I actually went there, <laughs> you know, was uh, quite a feat for me. And and I did that. And, and um I even looked through the Straits Times archives um, about some of, of a few of the ancestors. Um, and, and it was really interesting. You know, you see little snippets about parties that they held in their homes. Um, so it all came out really real for me. And my sisters, you know, I don't think I told you, but I do have five sisters. They range... Um, in, in terms of age, what the eldest is 22 years older than me. And so it's a wide age range, and they grew up in the 60s. So they always reminisced about the wonderful times they had. And they go like, oh, poor Sharon, she never experienced Changi. <laughs> you know, for me, it's the airport. For them, it's Loyang, you know, and they would like to talk about their weekends and all the fun they had by the beach. So I would record these things. You know, and they'll always tell me, you know, oh, this is what we used to do. Oh, poor Sharon, she missed all the firecrackers. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> I was born like, you know, a bit after they 
I guess it was the year they banned firecrackers or something. Yes. Yeah, so it's oh poor Sherry. She missed so much so much fun. So so um that's really how I captured all the family memoirs. Yeah. yeah, and it's so wonderful that you're putting it all into a book and people can read about it because it's very rich, right? I mean, that kind of culture that you come from and the heritage. Um, so were there any difficulties when, when you were writing this cookbook? Well, first and foremost, um, Puranakans are very guarded about their cooking secrets and recipes. Yeah. Okay. So I was going up against older sisters and relatives who weren't sure if I should be doing this, sharing this publicly. Okay. And, and you can ask a lot of families, they would feel that way. You can ask them, how do you make their acha? And they say, cannot tell you. <laughs> it's a family secret. Okay. And um, I, 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 you know, I took a leap of faith. I actually wrote them down because I felt, you know what, if I didn't write them down, um over time we will forget how it became how how the acha was crunchy in the first place or you know different things that they did um for example like misyam in my recipe we would fry the noodles and put it on a tray line with parchment paper you call it tracing paper to draw out the grease okay so those were like the kind of little tips here and there that I wanted to capture mm. and record it for posterity. Of course, the hardest was the uh, Katty's task. <laughs> uh, definitely the coconut, okay? I mean, um, number one milk, number two milk, you know, the apple bokwa, you know, uh, <laughs> there were so many versions. It was so mind-boggling. Um, I wrote about that in my book. Um, it was a mathematical challenge. Then you had to draw the Venn diagrams. <laughs> okay, this one goes here, that one goes there, you know. So it was very challenging. And then there are oftentimes uh, 20 cents this or 20 cents that. And then you wonder, is it 1959 or 1969? Oh and I've, so um, give you a more recent example. Uh, and of course, you know, a lot of them did not come with full method. And there were many recipes where it was in Baba Malay. <laughs> Suddenly, uh -huh. thankfully, I I'm more uh, familiar with Malay that you know if it had been in Chinese, I would have had a worse problem. I can't translate characters, okay. But if I if I read the Malay, I can sort of like understand. Oh, okay, this means that you know. Uh, so so I could piece that up, and then sometimes I would ask my sisters to verify. But um, one good example recently is about nasi biryani, okay? And, and that's why I'm doing a 10th anniversary edition because uh, I did this first book in my quote-unquote salad days. I was young and green, right? And um, the internet was really not as, um, you know, full of information as it is now. You can't Google and convert catties and tasks. Okay, I had to literally use the calculator <laughs> uh, 15 years ago. Okay, oh. I, had to, I had to take it down and, you know, of course now I know it's 600 grams, but then now you can, you can actually do an instant conversion on, yeah, right. on the computer, right? Okay, now um, I revisit, 
I revisited all my mom's recipes um, recently. I went through every single one against my cookbook. And I have gleaned at it and, and realized, you know, hey, this is something new. I want to change this. I've learned this. There's something new about that in terms of cooking techniques. A good example is nasi biryani, which is in my cookbook. And um, when I wrote it, I didn't know how it became yellow. <laughs> so I added yellow coloring in the recipe. Then when I revisited this recipe again recently, it said on one side, it said a little kuma kuma. And I was wondering, what is kuma kuma, okay? And then, you know, I suspected maybe it's saffron. And I Googled it, and it was saffron. So saffron is the thing that gives you the color. And if you now look at, and there's now a plethora of, like, Indian cuisine books. You know, you've got um, a lot of them coming out of the UK, US. Um, brilliantly written books. It's even the Middle Eastern cookbooks, they all use saffron. I get boxes of saffron from my Arab friends uh, as gifts. So kuma kuma is actually saffron. The other thing in that recipe was um, evaporated milk with lime juice um, squeezed in it. Mm. <laughs> and so it's to curdle the milk. So there are two types of um, ways, I guess, you know, that you could use. You could use um, yogurt, which is what um, oftentimes you see in Indian cooking, they use yogurt. But there's another way, which is curdled milk. Mm. And, and so the evaporated milk um, with the lime juice created this curdled milk. So you would eat mm -hmm. that with the biryani or does that go into the biryani? It goes into the, the, the marinade. Ah, oh, okay. Into the spice paste. And so um, when I did this recipe 15 years ago, I separated it. I thought something must be wrong, you know. Um, I, I, I put the lime juice um, aside and I, you know, I, I said, okay, you know, you cook the brownie, you put the evaporated milk, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, when it's all finished and done, you squeeze lime over it, you know, lime juice over it. So that's a different thing altogether. I'm going to change it. And Asma Khan, who is a cookbook writer and runs a restaurant in Darjeeling Express in London, I tweeted to her, I tweeted her and I said, I've just revised my nasty brownie. I'm going to share it with you. you know? <laughs> and of course, you know, 15 years ago, you think of nasty brownie as, you know, something you, you ate in Singapore and in Indian Muslim restaurants. And then, you know, as your... In, in terms for me personally, you know, as your world widens and opens and you have, um, you know, like um, friends from India, etc., you, you sort of realize, you know, there's a lot more behind Nasi Briani. Yeah. The, 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 the one that I grew up with on, from Arab Street, you know, I mean, when I was seven, eight, or a teenager eating nasi biryani, I thought, well, it's a Singaporean, you know, Arab street nasi biryani. And then you meet, you know, friends from India and everyone's serving you nasi biryani at some point. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, like there's so many variations of biryani in Singapore and I think nasi biryani is more localized. 
compared to mm-hmm. like biryani, the kinds that you would get in India. And I think your your example of the evaporated milk is such a local touch. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, milk in general will go bad in our weather or climate. Um, but there's also a lot more to evaporated milk because I too thought initially, oh, you know, evaporated milk was shelf stable, and that's probably why they used it for almond jelly for nasi biryani. But you know, the whole idea of not, uh, evaporated milk is actually uh, the water content um, literally gets evaporated, you know, and and so there is uh, a different for for you know lack of a better way of explaining it it's almost like a more concentrated kind Mm. of milk um and it's used in in my almond jelly recipe as well Mm. something that you wrote on your website is um you wrote that you'd like to do a third print but food trends and health consciousness suggest that there are changes that you would like to make um could you tell me more about that so it's a work in progress Okay, I've known a few doctors who are researching into diets, lifestyles, health problems. And it's no secret that um, obesity, heart problems, dementia, diabetes, they're all health issues that we face um, in the general population across the world. And I have encountered this within my own family. The um, matriarch who taught my mom to cook when she was a young bride was a blind grandmother-in-law who had diabetes. And so this is my own hypothesis that with a diet from young um, containing a high carbohydrate contents like glutinous rice, rice, sugar in quays, um, this, you know, one would naturally wonder if, if this contributes to like poor biochemical health uh, in people in in what doctors would call um, insulin resistance. You know, like, for example, for me, (laughs) I can't seem to lose weight at this point, okay? I mean, all all it takes is one bowl of pasta, and then the next day I put on, like, three pounds, okay? And I've been reading into this, you know, like, insulin resistance, and it seems like apparently it's a whole lifetime of your diet, you know, and you've had a whole lifetime of eating rice and quays and ice cream and cakes and all that um after a while your your body just gives up on this you know insulin processing apparently and and it does lead then to things that i am concerned about like obesity diabetes hypertension high cholesterol you know strokes um um so so that's why i was thinking that there should be a way for me to 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 work this out within my cookbook and then there's also this new trend with coconut oil you Mm. know and and then i i never paid quite much attention to the type of oil that we used uh for the cooking i would just basically say vegetable oil or oil or peanut oil um you know but my daughter is allergic to peanut oil so i never really mentioned peanut oil and then you know I, I'm going to pay more attention to that. I'm still weighing how best to convey these new insights without compromising on the actual recipes I've inherited from my mom. Mm. You know, so so I'm 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 still thinking of that. I mean, I I did go through a phase of revising the recipes, mm. um, but then you know, it will be 
it would have lost somewhat the essence of my mom's actual recipes. Yeah, and I think now we see a global trend of people trying to eat more vegetables and less meat in general. And, uh, you know, you mentioned how meat-heavy Peranakan food tends to be. So how do you think you could reconcile that part of your heritage with this um, desire for, for, you know, I mean, people's desire to want to eat more vegetables and have a lighter footprint on the environment? I think it's, it's just how you eat more sparingly. Um, I am a believer in moderation. Mm. You know, I mean, I would still love my piece of steak or my chicken or fish. Um, and I would just add more vegetable. The vegetable could be as simple as kangkong bachan, right? Or... Um, you know, <laughs> Napa cabbage, mm. which I, I, I actually learned to cook from uh, watching a Caucasian woman, an American woman on TV, okay? And, 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 and it comes from this recipe book called How to Cook Without a Book. <laughs> and uh, recently, I cooked Napa cabbage. I just put it in the wok, covered it, added some water to it. And my Korean friend said, you know, it really looks so unappetizing but then you can't stop eating it you know, because you just drizzle some red fish oil, a fish sauce. And then, you know, it's simple. You know, it's simple, but it's healthy. Um, so vegetables do not have to be so elaborately done. Of course, you know, you can go all out and make gado gado, mm. um, which is a meal of, of its own, right? Um, so, so there are ways to add more vegetable to your dishes. Yeah, I mean, that is something that I struggle a lot with when, um, you know, running Singapore noodles, because recently I've been wanting to eat more vegetables. But I realize how meat heavy and seafood heavy Singaporean food is. And when I go back to Singapore for a visit, it's like almost every single dish has some form of meat and seafood and you just can't get away from that. And uh, even when you go to the hawker centers, like when you order chicken rice, it's like chicken, rice, and then just a few slices of cucumber. So I, I, I have found that really difficult in trying to reconcile my own heritage and um, not feeling like you know I have to give that that side of me or like my Singaporean identity up when trying to eat more vegetables yeah so I don't know I'm still struggling with it and I'm still trying to find an answer to that so something else that you wrote on your blog was um, you talked about how a, a whole generation of professional housewives is fading. Um, so could you tell me about how you see this shift um, impacting Singaporean food culture? When I think of my mom, um, I think she was what we would call a professional housewife. Her, her life revolved around homemaking. You know, she, she sold my school uniforms, my pajamas. She ran the household. She managed the bills, planned the daily meals, organized all the family get-togethers, etc. Um, but in this day and age, you know, many of my friends, particularly those in Singapore, are career women. And um, there, there is actually, I think, a lot more sharing of responsibilities. Um, you know, they get help from their parents or in-laws or helpers. And at the same time, in general, we're not as slow-paced as in my mom's time. So putting food on the table for us can be rather frenetic. You know, like um, you've got to pick up the kids from 
soccer practice or violin, ferry them down for tuition, blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't think that sense of, um, not necessarily that the sense of homemaking the way that our mothers were, only because the lifestyle has changed. Um, on top of that, Singapore is so much more affluent now. And everyone wants to try a new restaurant. Um, everyone loves to travel, right? I mean, we all love to travel. I, I love to travel. And then, you know, um, you also want to, you know, like try different types of cuisine. And it's also become more prevalent to uh, tapao, you know, like the hawker centers. You, you can go downstairs, you can buy something. Um, and really, I mean, it's just the same with me in New York, you know, on a busy day, I can cop up and call and order delivery, right? Um, so I think that's how it's changed. Um, you, you don't necessarily have to sit down and plan a meal every single day, especially if you're working or you've got just so much on your plate. Mm. Um, because there are so many other options. And it's also a form of entertainment to try new restaurants. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I don't always cook on weekends because I like to try my neighborhood restaurants or, you know, like uh, when I travel, I like to try new restaurants. So, I mean, a lot of my friends also don't cook. I mean, you know, the recently married couples, they don't cook. And uh, I, I think that while I empathize with them being tired after a long day at work, I also do feel that we are losing a lot of the dishes that you know, maybe our mothers, our grandmothers have learned from the older generation. So what do you feel this means for Nonya cooking? I mean, I know that um, a lot of Nonyas, um, my age or your age, they don't really cook. Um, there's a growing trend of people wanting to eat out. So do you feel that that threatens the longevity of Nonya cooking? I started at, at some point in that phase as well. I think, you know, I was uh, daunted or intimidated because you think, oh, wow, you know, you look at the popia, you look at the laksa, you go like, oh, my goodness, how did they do it? You know, they must have spent days cutting up everything. <laughs> but unless you try cooking it yourself, you will always think it's laborious and painstaking. Okay. And, and I thought of that. Um, I thought of it that way with laksa. Um, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, it's like so elaborate. How am I going to try this? I'm supposed to be writing a recipe and cooking and publishing this cookbook with a laksa recipe in it. But you know what? It wasn't as bad the first time. And my daughter's kindergarten mantra was always practice makes progress. So one will get into the swing of it. Okay, If you can be interested in making ice cream or pasta from scratch, or spending a whole Thursday preparing a Thanksgiving meal, or a whole week preparing a Christmas um, feast, you can cook Nonya food. Besides, why keep trying all these different restaurants in search of the best laksa, the best tok panjang, when you can concoct it at home in, you know, and, and maybe, who knows, yours might be the best of them all yeah. you know by the time you aga aga and you you know you you do some trial and error 
there are two things that will happen. You get the taste closer to what your, your preferred taste is. You can cut here, you can add that, mm -hmm. you can add more chili or cut back on the salt, the blacha. And then because you've practiced a couple of times, you will get into the swing of it and you will actually do it pretty well. Yeah, that's so Right, like I've made Ota Ota and at first, you know, the first time I can, I, I still remember, you know, I could feel the the uh, coriander, you know, the mm -hmm. kutumbai, it was so like rough. <laughs> and now, of course, you know, I'm so much better <laughs> with it. Mm. Yeah, so it's the practice. Yeah, I think for me, the main motivation came when I moved abroad and, you know, you don't have access anymore to hawker centers or cheap local food. And uh, I think one of the biggest benefits that I saw uh, cooking Singaporean food at home for me was that you kind of taste how it's meant to be because outside sometimes they cut corners, right? So like when I make it at home and, you know, I can use really good ingredients, I can really spend time on it. I really taste the difference. I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's a true revelation. I, I completely um, agree with you. And I think it's not just in Singapore. I remembered asking somebody who grew up in Malacca. Mm. And I said, um, you know, can you recommend um, some restaurants to me because I'm going to Malacca? And she said, Sudala, they're all you know, like Tatspaka, <laughs> which means like, you know, they're not that great. Okay. I mean, not, not the way we know it. Okay. And, and even when I go back to Singapore, I mean, yes, you turn around, you go to one corner, you find laksa, you find misiam, you see all the nonia kueis. For the most part, I may be wrong. They all sort of taste almost the same. And then you wonder, did it all come from the same place? You know, maybe not. Mm -hmm. um, the nuances are no longer there. And you'll only get the nuances when you really go to like specific places. Um, so yes, I think to your point, if, if you get your own ingredients, you, you do it, you know, um, you can actually make a wonderful bowl for yourself. Mm. So when you moved abroad, did you ever feel like you were at risk of losing part of your heritage? I've been away for 25 years, wow. but I, I do come back um, very frequently, especially when my, when my dad was, he since passed away, but you know, as I was getting older, I would go back two times, three times a year. And so I never felt like, you know, I was, um, I had left and mm. been disconnected. So I have stay close to my heritage i mean until my relatives passed away I, I even made a point of visiting them um because you know after doing this project um i actually bonded with them mm. all my life i grew up thinking you know i i got to like uh wish them happy new year panjang panjang umokopo and all that you know you sort of very um you know respectful right you treat them with a lot of deference um but then you know sometimes i i would actually pop in and check in on them and talk to them uh, until they passed on so in terms of losing my heritage um i i don't think that really happened to me um it is actually a concerted effort to blend my traditions the the, the, the traditions i grew up with with the environment I'm in. Um, for example, now that I live in the US, I know of 
second generation Asians here who no longer give up ang pao to Chinese New Year. And to me, you know, that's sad because that was a really big part of my childhood. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, I try to keep those traditions alive within my family. And then um, I have the privilege of visiting a lot of museums here. I, I travel. And so I have become even more aware of my own special heritage. And I want to learn more about it in greater detail. Mm, fantastic. So one last question for you. How do you feel that Nanya cuisine or Singaporean food culture can be preserved on a broader level? Well, we need to support and celebrate those who have the entrepreneurial spirit to present this food in the best and most reliable way. Okay, whether they're cookery teachers, um, restaurant owners, cookbook writers, but you know, to preserve the food, it has to be authentic. Um, we you can modernize it by re redefining cooking techniques or you know, tweak it with fusion cooking, simplifying it. But, but it would be nice to retain the original substance. It's what put us on the map in the first place when it comes to food. And Singapore has been known for certain signature dishes. And it would be a real pity if none of us can cook the real deal a few decades from now. So we, we do have to support those who really want to preserve um, these dishes, these recipes, these food memories, you know, these traditions, the, the history, the culinary history. So where can people learn more about you or to, are they able to purchase your, your ebook? Yes, um, my ebook is available and um, Times the Bookshop is um, able to mail it out to um, overseas um, buyers um, with shipping costs and um, as you are aware I re-released the original edition recently and I am working on a 10th anniversary edition. Uh, I have been very touched by you know the, the kind of support I'm getting so I do want to keep you know my followers uh, sustained in their interests so I will update content on a very regular basis and come join me on this like you know uh discovery or rediscovery of you know the recipes you know i'm gonna uncover more that's so exciting i mean i would love to continue following you on your journey especially on instagram you know i saw that you have got a few things going on like you know you were explaining what aga aga cooking was so that's fantastic thank you for coming on the podcast it was so lovely chatting with you and like getting an insight into your creative process and you know some of the motivations behind this book Thank you, and I'm glad it all worked out. <laughs> that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Sharon Wee, who is the author of Growing Up in a Narnia Kitchen. Food media tends to focus on Singapore's best hits like chicken rice or laksa and fails to capture the diversity of Singaporean food. By documenting overlooked recipes, Singapore Noodles seeks to share about Singapore's rich food culture with you. If you'd like to support the work that we do, sign up to be a member on our website, sgpnoodles.com. You'll get access to all of the recipes on the site and participate in our monthly cook-alongs. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.